If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to jump right in and look at verse 21 through verse 29. This is a pretty uh, important time, an important day for a lot of different reasons. Memorial Day is great, and we, we remember those who have sacrificed their lives for us. But, but as we walk through the, the series that we've been in called Disciple, uh, which we've been, we started last fall and we're working our way through, and some of you think it's the eternal series and it feels that way. But we've been going through the first section of this series and calling Living the Life through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And today we actually come to the last portion of Scripture in Matthew 7 that kind of Jesus brings a, a conclusion to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what he talks about is extremely important because he's wrapping up everything that he's just told us, everything he's just explained, and what we've heard over the last six to eight months. He kind of wraps up in another analogy. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about in this portion, in this uh, midway through chapter 7, Jesus shifts, he kind of concludes his main teaching, and then he ends the whole thing with three analogies that really talk about three questions that, that come to us that are really, they're life and death questions or decisions you and I have to make in our life. If you're here a few weeks ago, we talked about choosing the right road. So you talk, we talked about a narrow path or road that leads to a small gate that leads to life, or you talked about the wide or broad road that leads to the wide, wide gate that leads to destruction. You and I make a choice in our life which direction we're going to go. Last week, if you're here, we talked about eating the right fruit, which in other words talked about false prophets or bad influences in our life that we accept and we bring into our life, and then how there's the opposite of that, the right influence that leads us towards the right direction of what God's doing. Um, last week, if you're here, by the side note, by the way, I talked a little bit about the positive influence that my dad has had in my life. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard that the positive influence, and a number of people have asked me, when is he going to speak here? When is he going to come? Well... Finally, I took initiative this week, and I checked out his schedule and our schedule, and I got it squared away. So he's coming June 22nd, and he's going to come and speak, which I'm excited about. So you'll get to hear. No pressure on him. I know you think he walks on water, and so when he gets here, we'll just pretend that he does, okay? So, but then this week, then Jesus gives us a third challenge or a third decision, a third thing that you and I have to consider. And that is the foundation or the house that we build in our lives and really what we build our life on, what we anchor our life to. And so this morning we want to talk about that because Jesus uses this analogy of a house. He's used different analogies each week. And now this week we're looking at kind of, again, the construction process or how we build the house of, of our life. And before we, we jump into the passage, I just want to see kind of talk a little bit about the way that we kind of approach things that you'll see in the passage of how many times we, we take on the concept even of building in our culture. So uh, living up in Oregon for the last number of years, uh, we were in a smaller community. Just about the time, maybe about a year, a little less than a year before we got there, um, one of the, a nationwide builder came into Newburgh to build. And that's not normal for Newburgh. It's a smaller town in, in Oregon. But, you know, the kind that builds like, you know, hundreds if not thousands of homes at the same time and the big tracks kind of pop up. And so... This builder came in, they got a hold of some land in Newburgh, and so they built probably, I don't know, 100 homes or whatever, which is a pretty big build for Newburgh. And so, of course, there was kind of a hub or buzz in the city, like, wow, this big nationwide builder's coming in. And so the houses got scooped up and purchased, and, and people were excited about it. Until a few months after everyone got into their homes, and you started hearing stories about the construction. So people were finding cracks in walls and things not working properly. In fact, when we first moved there, about the first couple months, we lived, we rented one of the newer homes. Um, a, a guy bought it and wanted to use it as investment property, so we were renting it from him. And, and it was interesting, I, I noticed within the first couple weeks we were there that this house wasn't quite right. 
they're uh, going from the, the kind of the family room, living room area into the kitchen. There was this bar area that on one side was a countertop uh, that went into the kitchen and the kind of a bar area going out into the family room. And every time I would come up, and I'm not a big guy, but I would come up and I would lean on it, it would move. Like, it would like teeter almost. And I'm like, I don't think it's supposed to do that. And then another time I went over to, to turn off a light on a light switch and I just happened to lose my balance and I pushed on the wall and I'm not joking, air came out of the wall. There was a tiny little hole in the paint, and when you pushed on it, it's like the wall would breathe. I'm thinking, that's not supposed to happen. And so more and more people started to complain about just the way that the houses were built. In fact, there was one area that when they purchased the land, there was a stream that would run through it, and they had told the city that we will maintain that area so that the stream is maintained and the properties aren't affected well, they didn't do that at all, and so that stream, when it would rain like it does a lot in Oregon, it started to erode some backyards, and fences started, started to fall down. Eventually, it just led to the city saying to this builder, thanks, but no thanks, you're not welcome in our town anymore. Now, under what Newberg had been used to was something a little bit different. There's a, a good friend of mine, his name is Matthew Powell, and he, he's a builder, and his, his, his company is called Powell Built Homes. And he has an amazing reputation, because anything that Matthew builds is solid. But he doesn't build 100 homes at a time. He builds one, maybe two, but usually just one house at a time. And in the time that, that that big builder could build 100 homes, he'll build one, so maybe six months to a year. But when he's done, the thing is solid. In fact, he built, uh, there was a subway that went into town, and, there was, uh, and he built the building from, you know, from the ground up. And it was like this hub in our town because everybody knew he built it and it was solid. And in fact, I told him, I said, I'll go petition the city council and ask them if, if you can rebuild all of downtown Newbury because every building he builds, it's just solid. He's the kind of guy that you want. But he takes his time and he makes sure that he uses the right materials. And then you know when he gets to the end result, it's solid. And I think sometimes you and I have to be careful. One of the things we're going to see in the passage today is that you and I would choose for the option to bring in the big builder who can do it fast and efficient and easy and quick and get the job done right away so that we can move in and we can make things happen instead of being patient and taking time and working through the process. This morning, what Jesus is going to talk about is challenging. These are some of the most challenging words that you will see in the Sermon on the Mount, as though none of them aren't challenging. They all are. But these specifically, as he kind of wraps up this era of teaching. So if you have your Bibles, let me start by reading verse 21. I'll read verse, down to verse 29. Again, Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Therefore, anyone or everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who's built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Now, before we get into the specifics, because what we're going to do, what Jesus does, we're going to compare the wrong house and the right house, and what those two houses or two lives are built upon. But to understand what Jesus is getting at, there's, there's, there's some things that are important to understand, and that is... When Jesus talks about storms, I think there's kind of a, 
a dual application, but I think he's leaning one direction and we're leaning the other. Because there are places in Scripture we will see the storms of life or the pressures of life or the worries of life, those kinds of things that come up. But when Jesus is talking about storms, he, he's probably referencing those, building your house on solid ground so that when life gets tough that you don't crumble. That's, that's a part of the application. But what he's really talking about, if you look at the context of the last couple stories that we've read or the analogies, when he's talking about the road and the path, he's talking about eternity. When he's talking about the influences in our life, he's talking about eternity. He's not shifting gears and changing subject. When he's talking about the house or the rock, he's talking about eternity. And what I mean by that is the storms that Jesus is referencing probably have more to do with the storms that will come at the end of all things that will come in the form of God's judgment on people. That when that storm comes, are you and I going to be anchored on Jesus and what he did on the cross for us and his resurrection? Or are we going to build our own house on our own foundation that when those storms come, we won't be able to weather that? We won't be able to handle that. It's much broader and bigger than just the difficulties of our life, although it can be applied there, and we do apply it that way. But I want you to think in terms of that, that the storm Jesus is really talking about is that you and I are building our house for the future. And so what you and I do in this life has a lot to do with what will happen in the next life and in, in eternity. So with that understanding, let me start with the talking about the wrong house and the things that Jesus talks about in the passage. The wrong house, first of all, is built on the first thing. Look at verse 21. is built on words. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, not everyone who says these words will be able to enter, will be able to experience eternity with me. Even though they might say the right words, the words really won't matter. And that's something for you and I consider in our life. How much of our life is based on what we say? Not what we do, but what we say. Choosing the right words, making sure that we can do things that, that somehow we think, okay, if I make sure I phrase this right, if I make sure that I confess my sin this way, if I make sure that I just get it just right, then somehow I'm obligating God at the end of all things to somehow let me in because I've said it right. You think, well, I don't do that, but you know, sometimes we do. We do that. And in fact, I grew up in that when I was much younger. Anybody ever prayed the sinner's prayer before? Okay, some of you don't, what is the sinner's prayer? Well, because we hear about it less and less, but sometimes we come up with kind of a, a formula like, okay, if you just pray this prayer, then that's really all you have to do. And then you're saved and you know Jesus. And it's making sure you choose the right words to say. That's kind of scary. If that's all that it was, was I just had to somehow say the right words, then Jesus punches my ticket and I'm in the door, then everyone would be a Christian. Everyone would know Jesus. But it's not just words. I remember when I first, first gave my, my life to Christ, when I was six years old, I, there was some tension there because I knew that this was a big moment, but at the same time, my biggest concern was not necessarily heaven, it was hell. That's where I didn't want to go. I was a little afraid, so I thought, I need to pray the prayer. And I remember kneeling down on the couch and my dad praying with me, and, and, and I knew there was something that changed my life, but I know it was really based out of fear. And it was so much driven by fear. I remember probably for the first few years after I became a Christian, I would lay awake at night when I was six, seven, eight years old with this fear. What if I die and I stand before Jesus and I say the wrong thing? Seriously, I thought, what's he going to ask? Because we always say, what, what, will, what will you say when you stand before God someday? And he says, why should I let you into heaven? Anybody ever heard that question before? As though it all comes down to one question. You better get it right. And I remember I would like memorize, what am I going to say? 
Okay, I can't say that I did all this great stuff because it's about grace. I can't give them all the things that are great about me because I know it's not about me. So what do I say? I have to remember, it's because I accepted Jesus. That's it. If I say that, I'm in. I would lay awake at night saying, as long as I remember that, if I die tonight, I'm going to say that and Jesus has to let me in. I know I'm just a little strange, okay? But it's just, it's just that fear. And it's like, okay, if I just get the words right. Many times in our life, we just live by words. We say a lot of things and do very little about what we say. And that's a challenge because there are people that will stand before Jesus someday and will actually say, Lord, Lord. They'll acknowledge his lordship somehow of who he is, but they still have missed something because everything of what their life has been built on has been built on saying the right words, but not necessarily living that out. Second thing, look at verse 22. The wrong house is also built on performance. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That's impressive. Can we just be honest? Can you imagine you stand before, okay, look, I've prophesied. I've spoken the word of God to people and they've heard clearly. I have cast out demons. That's pretty good. Anybody cast out a demon lately? Probably not most of us. I've performed many miracles. Any miracle workers in the room? Most of us don't have that same kind of spiritual resume. That's impressive. But Jesus wasn't impressed at all. He wasn't impressed with this. He won't be impressed with someone's performance on how well they did this thing called Christianity. But how many times in our life do we think that's true? This is what's scary. You and I could have the appearance and even sometimes the action of a Christian and still not be one. The way we know that's true because there's evidence in the Bible. So Saul... In the Old Testament, he was the king nobody wanted to be like. David was the king everyone wanted to be, be like. But before David became the sitting king of Israel, Saul was always hunting him down because he knew he was his rival. And in one of those instances, in, in 1 Samuel 19, we see that Saul's pursuing David once again. He's going after him. And even in his sin and brokenness, you know what's amazing, is the Spirit of God comes on Saul and his men as they're going to try to kill and capture, or capture David. And what happens? They prophesy. Wait a second. David's enemies were prophesying. The ones that wanted to kill God's anointed were what? Prophesying. Can you imagine Saul's men standing before God someday and say, Hey, we prophesied. Remember 1 Samuel 19. We did it. Even Saul prophesied. And Saul missed the mark, didn't he? So you, you and I have to take a look at our life and think, How much of my life is based on accumulating an impressive resume someday that I can present before God? We have a tendency to do that, I think, more than you and I think. That we, we come up with things to do, and so we feel like, well, I, at least I can add that one to the list. In our mind, you and I don't necessarily present it to people, but, but there's that side of us, well, at least I, I've done well enough in this, and so somehow God's going to have to let me in. We do. We, I, I know I do this. I know I'm guilty. So if I do it, that means at least 75% of you do this too. And that is you and I grade each other. We grade each other, and we grade on the curve, and we always make sure that we're at the top of the curve. We always find someone who's a little bit lower than us. So if we're doing some good stuff, at least I'm doing more than they're doing. At least I'm caring more than they're caring. And so we, we think that way. And what we're doing is we're trying to do something that you and I cannot do. We cannot justify ourselves before God. We cannot. Because God's standard is 100%, 100% of the time. But somehow we're into this mode of thinking, well, if I just do a little bit better than somebody else, or I do okay, then God's gonna, he's going to be impressed with what I've done. He will not be impressed with anything that we've done. That's what he's trying to say here. And sometimes that's what we're building our house on. We're building on this performance that somehow that's going to get me in the door at the end. And then the third thing, jump to verse 26. 
the wrong house is also built on hearing. Because Jesus says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. Hears. I hear Jesus' words. I listen to them. They come in my ear. They actually penetrate my brain. But somehow they don't translate to any action in my life. Jesus says that there will be people who are convinced that they're in, but they're not because they've only just been people who can listen but never really take action. You and I need to be really careful on this one. We live in a day and age and in a culture where we have become professional listeners. We are really good at it. In the church, we have never had access to more listening opportunities than ever before as we do now. That's why, if, even in our church, if you miss a Sunday, don't worry about being in community or seeing anybody. Just go on the internet or go through iTunes and you can do what? Listen to the message. We're junkies. Christian radio, get a CD, go online, listen to a podcast. I know I do it. I listen to different pastors all the time, listen to conferences and things. And it's great, but the problem is, is that we're listening so much, maybe we don't even have time to do anything. Because all we're doing is listening constantly. All we're doing is listening. And we get excited in the moment. And maybe we get inspired. And, and maybe we like a certain thing that a pastor said. But when we leave that moment or we walk away and we go back into normal life, we forget about what we've heard. And it never translates. Maybe for some of us, we just need to not listen anymore and just simply do. Because we've heard enough. And we've probably heard everything about 10 times. And what God's waiting for us to do is actually take action. Take steps. Now, I remember one time, one church I was pastoring, a lady came up to me and, and she was very meticulous in all areas of her life, including the way she would take notes. She came up to me, I think after like six years, and she said, she goes, I want you to know something. She goes, I, I, I really love your messages and I listen to them and I, and I just really take them in. She goes, I want you to know, I have taken notes on every message you've ever preached at this church. And I have them in a catalog. And I have them in a file. I'm like, oh, wow. At first I was impressed. And then I thought, I'm a little scared. I don't even remember all the things that I've said. And she remembers all of them. And it was like she was presenting like, wow, I, I got everything. But the greatest tragedy would be to take notes for six years and it never translate to your life. Now, I'm not saying that was true of her, but how good are we at taking notes? How good are we at taking things in? How good are we at listening? We're great at it. But Jesus said the point of building a house that's going to stand the test of time and it's going to stand through eternity is not what you hear, it's what you do with what you hear. There's a big difference between the two, and you and I need to be challenged in that. We have access to all this information, all these messages. You can even listen to Scripture now more than ever before. If you have any kind of a smartphone or a computer or an iPad, you can go on version and you can listen to multiple translations of Scripture. It's crazy how much we can hear. But the point is not just hearing and listening. It's actually doing what we're hearing. Which leads to the fourth thing. The fourth thing that you don't have to remember that house, the wrong house is built on. It's built on convenience. So Jesus says some, something pretty important here. He says, talking about the person who's building on the sand. He says, so it's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, if you heard the last couple of weeks, Jesus uses analogies that, that have some connection to the culture that he's in. 
So a few weeks ago when he talked about the gates and the, the road, people understand roads. And last week he talked about fruit. And he talked about the difference between like thistles and figs and, and what, what the appearance is. And so he's using all these analogies. And again, he uses an analogy for people in that day and age to understand. So in Palestine, it, there's a lot of sand. And there's seasons where it's wet and there's seasons where it's dry. And so what they would do in times that it was dry, you would have a dry riverbed because there's no water. And people who wanted to build a house and do it quickly didn't consider where the river would be when there's floods or when there's water coming from the sky and saw the sand and literally would just pop their house up on top of the sand in the middle of a riverbed. So as Jesus is explaining this, they're getting, they're liking, oh, I know those people. I know the kind of people who do that. The kind of people that they don't want to take the time to really do anything difficult to make it last. They just want to get everything done so they can have a house. And so whatever it takes, they'll build it and do it quickly. Those are the kind of people that are in danger in time of losing everything. Why? Because they haven't anchored themselves or they're anchored their house to the rock. Now think about this for a moment. This, is, this one's really convicting for me. Think about when it comes to following Jesus, how many decisions do you make that if we're in all, in all honesty here, are not based on following Jesus, but they are based on what is easy and convenient. You don't have to answer out loud, but how many decisions? How many things do you do in your Christian walk that if you were really honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what, I'm really doing that because it's easy, it's accessible, it's convenient. But if it was a little bit more difficult, I probably wouldn't do it. See, all of us fall into that boat. We do it at New Hope. In fact, every church does it. Let me just give a couple examples of things that we make decisions in our own walk with Jesus and in our own church that are based on purely our convenience. Let's talk about service times. This is really basic. We have a service at 9 and we have a service at 11. Why do we have 9 and 11? Anybody know? It's because there's a verse that says those times are sacred, that you must have church at 9. No, you can't find it in the Bible. Why do we do that? Because 8 o'clock is too early and 12 o'clock is too late. That's it. That's it. You should hear the dialogue amongst pastors. I have a lot of pastor friends. I've watched pastor after pastor pull their hair out, trying to figure out when do I put the right time for the right service so that people will show up. I mean, it's, it's crazy, the dialogue. And, and it's like, I had a friend, in fact, Jason Graves, who was our speaker, we were talking about another pastor, and he was going to do a service at a certain time or like, dude, don't do it. He goes, yeah, I talked him off the ledge. That would have been suicide. No one would have showed up to that service. You know, it's, it's, it's really, you're trying to figure out why. If we had a service at 5 a.m., how many of you would be here? In fact, I asked John Looney during the service. He said, I wouldn't even be there at 5 a.m. and I'm on staff. So we can't even, you know, some of you are like, hey, I'm an early riser. I'll be there, all three of us, right? With a lot of coffee. It's based on convenience. When we arrive at church is based on what? Convenience. It is. Some of us are here early, some of us are here late, but what? The decision is based on what? What's convenient for me? What's easy for me? What's normal in my normal routine? How about service length? Just another example. So we run about an hour and 20, an hour and a half service. Why is that? Because God can show up in that amount of time? I've had people say, man, how do you go an hour and a half? You should only go an hour. You know, people lose track after an hour. They're all tuning you out. You should just quit, and after an hour, you're done. And other people are like, well, if you really want the Spirit to move, it's going to take at least two and a half to three hours, so you should be going longer. Why are you going so short? And everybody has this idea, and really, why is it hour and 20, hour and a half? You know, it's convenience. It really is. It's because, especially with two services, we have to make sure 9 o'clock ends 
We went a little long this morning, so just to warn you, we might go a little long today. Some of you are like, oh man, really? My stomach hurts already. I'm really hungry, and that's all right. You'll survive. But what is it? It's convenience. Why? We've got to make sure that the cars get out of the parking lot so that second service, you guys can all have a parking space. It's all about what? Convenience. What's, one of the things I strongly encourage you to do sometime in your life is get outside the United States and go travel to a country where the church is growing. Go watch how the rest of the world does church. They do it very differently. When I was in China, let me tell you, service times, who cares? They come early and they stay late. And their service times in somebody's house, cramped in a living room, don't go an hour and 20 minutes. I think I told some of you, I preached for an hour and 10 minutes. And when the guy got up to the end to conclude the service, this is what he said. He said this, of course, in Mandarin, and it was translated to me. He said, we really enjoyed our guest speaker. Even though he didn't have a lot to say today, what he had to say was really good. Uh, An hour and 10 minutes. If I went an hour and 10 minutes, you guys would probably get up and walk out. I'm joking. I know I'm exaggerating. At least five of you would stay, and they're all my family members, but that's okay. (laughs) But seriously, how much do we do that is based on what is easy and convenient for us? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about in our lives, we make spiritual decisions, not on spiritual things. We base it on what's easy for us, what's convenient for us. And you and I have to be careful that the decisions that we make are not based on what's easy, not based on convenience, but based on what's right and based on the conviction of what God's driving at. That means that you and I will have to make decisions that are uncomfortable, that are not easy, that are difficult and are hard and require sacrifice. So then shifting gears, talking about the house, the right house, and what that house is built on, what Jesus talks about. Look at verse 21 again. So the first thing that the right house is built on is that it's built on God's will. Says, Jesus says, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who gets in. That's the one who's built on the rock. Only the one who does the will of my Father. Now you think, well, wait a second. I thought I'm saved by grace. It's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's because of his mercy. It is. But what Jesus is talking about here is he's describing the evidence of our salvation, not the justification for it. There's two, it's different. It means if these things should be true, if we are living out God's will in our life, it's not because we're trying to earn our way into eternity. It's because Jesus has transformed us and his spirit lives inside of us. Therefore, the outcome is I live God's will for my life. Because Jesus tells us that. And sometimes that's the big mystery. What is God's will for my life? And how do I find it? As though God is playing kind of cat and mouse. He's playing hide and seek. And well, I know you're going to find my will or not. No, you know what God's will is? If you really ever are in a quandary and you want to know what God's will is, just read through the Gospels. Because Jesus said some pretty profound things. One of those being, I only do what the Father wants me to do. I only see, I only do what I see the Father doing. Therefore, what is Jesus saying? I do the will of the Father here on, here on earth. What is, hap- what is in heaven happens on earth through Jesus. He demonstrates what it is to live by God's will. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-6. through 6. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what his commands, or do his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love of God uh, is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him, to know him, must live as Jesus did. Wow. So how do I live my life? You live like Jesus did. I know none of us are the Son of God, and none of us will die on the cross for the sins of the world, and none of us will be, go through the resurrection like Jesus did. We will be resurrected because of his resurrection and his power. 
But if you want to know what it is to live out the will of the Father, read through the Gospels. Look at the way Jesus lived his life. We have lots of evidence, even outside of his death and resurrection, that shows you and I what it is to be fully human, but to live out God's will in our life. Jesus didn't live off convenience. In fact, one of the things that could be true of Jesus' life is that he lived a life of absolute inconvenience. Starting with the fact that he came into the world. Do you think it was slightly inconvenient for the God of the universe who was there at creation to become one of his creations, to be a human being? That's slightly inconvenient. And most of Jesus' miracles happened when? When he was on his way somewhere else. Inconvenient. We get irritated when someone cuts us off or if we're a little late, right? Can you imagine people clamoring around you constantly? Oh, heal me, heal me. You get a little irritated after a while, wouldn't you? But Jesus never did. Why? He cared about people. So when you and I take a step back and think about this, the question that we have for ourselves is, am I living out God's will or am I living out my version of God's will in my life? Because we can take God's will and we can kind of tweak it a little bit and we can make it a little easier, a little more acceptable, change the hard parts, embrace the easy parts, and then say, yeah, I'm living out God's will until you and I encounter Jesus and think, oh, wait a second. There's something different about his life than there is in my life. You and I have to constantly think about that. If we're going to build on the anchor that is the rock, who is Jesus, that lasts into eternity, you and I have to come to grips in our life. Am I going to live out God's will or am I going to live out my own? Because there's no, there's no in-between. Second thing, in verse uh, 24, the right house is also built on, these are really easy, obedience. I think obedience is the hardest thing in the Christian life, by far. Jesus says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Jesus has planted this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because he's saying, listen, I just gave you a ton of stuff that's really hard and you've just heard it. But what I'm telling you is if you're going to build your life on me, you need to do what I just said. You need to live this out. You need to be obedient. And that is difficult because what you and I like to do, and I know this is me too, I like the, the, the knowledge side and less of the application side. I like to learn lots of things about Jesus and about God, but man, when I have to apply those things, that's when it gets really difficult. That's called obedience. And that's why when you and I stand before God someday, he's not going to say, how many podcasts did you listen to? How many Christian books did you read? How many reading plans did you do on version? He's not going to care. You know, he'll already know what you did with your life because he'll look at what you did in your life in terms of knowing that you've been saved and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, there's, a, there's an obedience about your life that's different. If you and I, I, I've thought about what would it be like, just give me one week of my life. And if every moment in that week, I absolutely obey Jesus. Just think about one week of your life. What would that look like? No disobedience for one whole week. Do you think our lives would look different? I know mine would. Maybe I'm more, dis- more disobedient than most, but I know my life would look very different. But what if we just obeyed and really believed, do you know what? I think Jesus, even though it's difficult and it's hard, maybe he does know a little bit more than I do because he's God and I'm not. So I had a pretty good coach in high school in basketball. We were last game of the season, my senior year, it was win, go to the playoffs, lose, don't get in. Came down to the, to, towards the end of the game. This is probably one of my better high school games. I usually was never the leading scorer, but that game I was. 
And so for some reason, I could shoot the ball really well that night, and so I was scoring points, and so the, the team we were playing against knew that. So it's really kind of cool when they look for you on the floor because you're actually making baskets. It shows you some respect. So we got to the end of the game. We were down by two, and there was four seconds left, and we got the ball. Now, at that time, the games changed a little over time. You could not advance the ball to half court like you can now, and even in high school. So we had to go the full length of the court to score a basket in four seconds to tie the game to send into overtime. We didn't have a player fast enough or talented enough to get four seconds across the whole floor to score a basket. We just didn't have it. So my coach calls a timeout. He pulls us over, gets us in the huddle, and he says, listen, you need to listen to what I'm going to say because we're going to win this game. We're like, okay, well, that's just like nice thinking. But, you know, we're thinking four seconds, two points down. So he draws up a play and says, listen, do exactly what I'm telling you to do. So he, he sets up a play. We actually pass the ball half the court and get it to half court. And the guy who catches it calls timeout. One second goes off the clock. So now we move the ball halfway there in one second, only three seconds left. So he calls another timeout. We go in a huddle, and he draws up. He listen, this is how we're going to do it. This guy's going to get open. You're going to pass the ball. We're going to get all the way down to the, onto the baseline near our basket where we're going to eventually score. So we do it. We run it. The guy gets the ball timeout one second off the clock down to two seconds. We move the ball 94 feet in two seconds. And now he's set up. He goes, now we're where we need to be. He calls another timeout. We go down. He goes, this is what we're going to do. And at that point, I'm thinking, this is exciting. We're, we're going to win. And, and because of that, he draws up a play for me because I've been shooting really well. But he's also smart enough to know that there's a couple other players on our team that are really good. One in particular who's our best, he's a best shooter, highest scorer on the team. So he draws up the play and he knows, and I didn't know this till after the game, I was the decoy. The ball was never going to go to me. He knew it wasn't going to get to me, but we drew up the play so it looked like it was going to go to me. But he took our best shooter and put her him closest to the ball. Well, they were cheating to where I was because they thought I was going to take the shot. So sure enough, they shift over to where I am at, and it leaves our, our best shooter. He's about 20 feet away from the basket open, and he hits, the, he hits the shot at the buzzer, and we go into overtime. We end up winning by eight points. I remember stepping back from that game and thinking, my coach is absolutely a genius. But, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if he called a timeout, and he said, this is, this is what we're going to do. And then when we got out on the court, all five of us decided to do something different. We wouldn't have won. We never would have advanced the ball down the court. We never would have... Our best player wouldn't have made the shot. None of that would have happened if somehow between what we heard in the huddle and what we decided to do on the floor, if those two things were different, we don't win. How many things in our life, and even more importantly, how many things in eternity are impacted by what you and I decide to do from what we hear? Jesus said it's not enough to just hear it. It's when you put it into practice that demonstrates that you are anchored to the rock. It's through obedience. And then the third thing, of the right house and what it's built on is that it's built on sacrifice. Aren't these easy? I know they're really easy, aren't they? Jesus says, talking about this person, he's like a man, a wise man who's built his house on the rock. So again, this analogy, sand and rock. So Jesus is not just talking about finding a, like a, a pile of rocks or a big rock and then sticking your house on it. They, people would do that. But what if, you, what if you're in an area and there is no obvious rock, all you see is sand? Jesus is using an analogy that what people would do is they would dig down underneath the sand and they would find the bedrock under the sand and then they would anchor their foundation to that. When you have to go down deep to find the bedrock, that's not easy. That's not convenient. That's difficult. That requires 
perseverance and sacrifice and realizing if this is going to stand the test of time, it's got to be anchored to something solid. That means I'm going to have to keep digging down until I get to something that's solid. Jesus is using that analogy for, for us to understand that if you and I are going to build a house that stands the test of time, it's built on sacrifice. Not sacrifice to earn salvation, but sacrifice that demonstrates you and I know Jesus. If he really is the God of the universe who truly died on the cross for our sin and has given everything for us to save us from our sin, to save us from hell, to transform our souls, then you and I should be willing to do anything for him. Anything in following him. Being willing to sacrifice. And I I know, as I've told you before, when I go through a passage, I'm looking at this through the lens of my life, not how am I going to make this sound great for people. And this, this week, as I was preparing this, and even earlier when I was looking at the passage, I started just to reflect on my own life and started looking at the areas where I know I haven't sacrificed, where I've chosen convenience. But then the areas where I know that I've looked and think, you know what, there came a moment where I had to sacrifice. I had to give something up. Those were hard moments in my life. And I could look at markers in my life, and about 90% of the points of growth in my life are tied to a moment of sacrifice or a moment of surrender, or something very difficult. I've seen it, it, tracked it through. So let me just take you on a quick little history of my life, okay? Because this is what I discovered. When I was six years old and I made the first commitment to Jesus Christ, I remember that even though I didn't fully understand what I was doing, I knew that there was something different about my life, that even at age six, I knew that I wasn't in charge anymore. There was something in me that I knew that, I knew that there was somebody bigger in charge of my life from that moment forward. But then as I started to grow up and started to have to come to grips with my own faith and not my parents' faith, I remember a, a, a particular gathering where someone was speaking and the message was so powerful and I came forward because they were calling for surrender, that I once again to surrender your life to something bigger than yourself to allow Jesus to call the shots. And that was, my, that was like 1984. I remember that. It was like right, right before I went into high school. And I remember going through that and this altar call. And I remember just going up and, and it was difficult. I remember crying because I knew, again, I had taken control of my own life. And Jesus was saying, you've got to let it, let it go. I remember surrendering that. And you go through middle school, you go through high school and navigating my own faith. And then coming into college and reaching that point where you're like, okay, what am I going to do? 1989 rolls around and I'm struggling. Okay, God, I'm, I'm like navigating into college. I got my plan for my life, which, which was basically I'm going to make loads of money and be really happy and successful. And you can come along too, by the way, if you want. But that was what my plan was. So remember, I got into a couple schools that I wanted to get into. And, and because I was moving down that road and, and some things changed, I needed to get a little more money for some of the schools. So I worked full time and then went to junior college at night and did some of that stuff. But then after, after a little while, I was like praying. And, and I, I remember I, I said to God, I had told him all my high school years, I will never go to Life Bible College. It's the last thing I'm going to do. All three sisters went there. My dad was a professor there. I don't want the family tradition. So finally, after that year, I was still I'm like, okay, finally, God. I said, God, I'll give you a year. That's all I'm giving you. I'm going to go to life for a year, and then I'm done. It's out of my system. Then I'm going to go make money. That's what I told God. And then I went for that year, and during that year, God, God really got a hold of me. I remember the moment where I had to surrender and say, okay, It doesn't matter how much money I make in this life because my happiness is not based on money. The last thing that I wanted to do is the thing that I'm doing right now. If you would have told me I was going to be a senior pastor that had to do public speaking every week, I'd have said, you don't know who I am. That's the wrong guy, not me. But God had something else in mind. But accelerated point of growth in my life to surrender again. 
Then we moved to, we go through some, some things, planning a church I've told you about in Ventura. And 2004 rolls around, and I finally come to this amazing conclusion. Jesus is the Lord of the church. You already knew that. I know that. I'm a little slow. It took me four years to figure that out as a senior pastor that I wasn't the Lord of the church. And let me tell you, the transformation in my life, in the person that I thought I was and what God wanted to be and the way I led as a pastor, dramatically changed. Then we moved to Oregon. I did not want to move to Oregon. Kim didn't want to move to Oregon. Courtney and Jordan didn't want to move to Oregon, but God opened the door and said, you're moving to Oregon. I remember that was really difficult. And I remember the day that, that Kim's parents, they, they, they followed us up and helped us get our stuff moved in. And they were there for about a week. And, uh, and Kim and I were really close to her parents. And, and I remember after everything kind of transitioned, we drove them to the airport. We put them on a plane. I remember we got back in the car. It was me and Kim and Courtney and Jordan. And it hit me. We're alone. We knew no one. And I lost it. I drove three parking spaces and had to park the car and just sob. And then I look at Kim. She starts sobbing. Then Courtney and Jordan, they chime in. All of us are just crying. Like, isn't God's will wonderful? No, it's not. It's not that moment. But I remember after, like about a week or two after that, as we're just kind of navigating that, that moving to a new place, not knowing anybody and expectations, all these things, I remember realizing God kept saying, I called you here, so I'm here. It doesn't matter if your family is a thousand miles away in Southern California. I'm still here, and that's what matters. And then we went through an amazing five or six years of incredibly fruitful ministry in Newburgh. And when it got to 2012, and God started to stir, and the door opened to come down here, I'll be honest, I did not want to move from Oregon. You can ask him. Why would I want to walk away from a church that God is doing amazing things that we were making incredible strides into our community, reaching people. I mean, and, and the byproduct was, yeah, the church was growing, but it wasn't that it was so exciting. It was the transformation in our community because of our church. I'm like, why would I want to leave this? I know it rains all the time, but why would I want to leave this? And I remember God said, you have to let it go. You have to let it go. And so I said, okay, God, you're going to call us back to Southern California. We're going to go. And now the journey continues. And some of you are thinking, well, when are you finally going to leave us? And I'm just kidding. Hopefully you're not thinking that. You didn't laugh as hard as first service, so I'm a little concerned. Now let's move on. Anyway, so final thing. Um, Jesus talks about the right house and what, what it's built on. And so the last thing is in verse 23. I want to touch on that is intimacy. Jesus says something really interesting in verse 21 or tw- verse 23. He says, then I will tell them. These are the people that presented the resume. They said, look at, we call you Lord, Lord, and look at what we've done. This is what Jesus says. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. He didn't say you should have done more. He didn't say you should have done something else other than that. You got the, you did the performance thing, but you performed in the wrong way. He doesn't say that. What does he say? I never knew you. I don't know you. There's no intimacy. There's no connection. You never surrendered yourself to me. You never gave me your life. So therefore, it says, though, can you imagine at the end of your life and at the end of time standing before the God of the universe and he looks at you in a very unfamiliar way? That's scary. That's frightening. And it's because somehow in our life, you and I became professional Christians and we did the church thing and we did all the things we're supposed to do, but we, we never knew him. We never knew him at an intimate level. We never let him in fully into our lives so that he knew everything about us. He's God. He knows everything. But there's that process of us surrendering ourselves so that we're fully known by God as we know him. 
what we should see on the face of Jesus someday is a familiarity. Almost a smile that says, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. And now I welcome you into eternity with me. See, how many of us will get to the end thinking, oh, I know him, he knows me. It's that awkward moment where you think that somebody knows you, but they don't. You ever had that moment where they should, you've talked to them before and they think that you know, and they don't even remember your name, and you're like, yeah, I remember, you know, this year, and, and they're like, anybody ever had that awkward moment? Yeah, we all have. It's really awkward when it's the God of the universe and it's the end of all time. Kim's brother is a pilot, and because he's a pilot and he's also a flight instructor, he, from time to time, he teaches celebrities how to fly because God just opened some doors. And one of those was Kenny G. Now, Kenny G, some of you for younger, you're wondering, who's Kenny G? It, he's usually the guy that shows up in commercials now and they mock his music, but he's still really a good sax player. One of the, probably the best of all time. And so Kurt had taught him to fly, and because of that, they started a friendship. And, and uh, Kim and I have liked Kenny G, and we like in his music. And so Kurt got us into a concert. I took the family, and we went backstage, and Curry introduced us, and it was great. We got pictures with him. We're like, hey, we're buds with Kenny G. It's really cool. So fast forward a couple years, and now we're up in Portland, and he comes into town. And so we call, Kim calls Kurt and said, hey, can you get tickets to Kenny? He's in town. And and Kurt's, oh, yeah. So he calls up Kenny and says, hey, you know, my sister and her husband, blah, blah, blah. So he gets us six tickets. So we take two two friends, two couples, so six of us all together. And we're like, hey, we know Kenny G. You've got to come to the concert. This is really cool. We're going to get backstage. We're going to introduce you to him. So we're all excited about it. So we go to the concert. It's totally amazing. He's got some of the most amazing musicians in his band. And then it comes to the end, and we walk over to the backstage area, and we walk up, and all we really had to do was say who we were. At least that's what we thought. So we walk up there, and we have, you know, whatever credentials we're supposed to have. But we say, hey, you know, we're here to see Kenny and and his, so we, his manager's there, and we've met his manager before, and he's like, well, you're not going back here. No, 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 he, he's waiting for us because we're here because, you know, and he's like, no, 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 no one's going back. You're, you're not going back. You're like, no, 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 you don't understand. So we're like, the whole thing. Curtis Warren taught him how to fly. He's friends with Kenny. He called. Kenny gave us the tickets, and he's like, I don't know who you are. He doesn't know who you are. You're not getting back there. So at that moment, you're thinking, wow, I look like an idiot. You got your friends here like, yeah, you're going to meet Kenny. No, you're not. And then so we waited for Kenny to be back, you know, done backstage. And he comes walking out. And there, I think there's something like, well, he comes out. He's going to recognize us, you know, only the thousands of people he sees all the time. He's going to know us. And so he walks out to kind of, you know, walk the line and sign autographs and do everything. And we're like, hey, Kenny. And he's like, hey, as he keeps on walking and just walks away from us. And we're like, well, that didn't work either. It's just that when you walk away from that thinking, we thought we were really something and we were really nothing. The only connection was, was Kim's brother. He really knew Kenny. We really didn't. There was something between that. There's something that broke down. There's a greater tragedy. And I can't underscore this enough. There's a great tragedy that when you and I get to the end of eternity, there is no second chance. There isn't this opportunity to get reacquainted with Jesus. There's only one opportunity, and that's this life. And that's why Jesus ends this very important teaching with understanding you and I, when we make decisions today, they will have eternal consequences in our life. And the biggest question is not necessarily, do I go through the nuts and bolts and I do these things and make, no. It's taking a step back and asking this really very important question. From the outset, have I anchored my life to Jesus or have I just simply, out of convenience, built a house on the sand that I think is anchored But when I get to the end, it's not going to be fun to find out that I've been living on sand 
And when the judgment of God comes, what I thought would stand gets blown away. Jesus said it comes down with a crash. So for you and I, we have a choice today. We have a choice. Am I going to take the narrow road that leads to the small gate? Am I going to allow the right influences in my life and not allow those things that are false? And am I ultimately going to choose to build the right house on the right foundation so that someday when I stand before Jesus, when he sees me, it's going to be like friends that have known each other a whole lifetime that now finally get to be reunited. Worship team, would you go ahead and join us? They're going to join us for one last song. Let me pray as we allow this this time to be sealed. We're going to sing a, a song called Christ is Enough, which I believe will see, helps to seal the whole series that we've been in and what we've walked through, reminding ourselves this is all about Jesus. It's about following him. It's about knowing him. It's about walking in his grace and his forgiveness in our life so that someday we can experience eternity with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your words. Thank you for your challenge to us. I pray that, that today, Lord, that we would really seriously consider, Lord, even though it might be scary, we would really look hard at our own life and ask the question, Lord, what have we built our house on? Is it, is it something that's solid and secure, that's going to stand, Lord, not only the storms of this life, but most importantly, the, the storm of your judgment at the end of all time that holds us accountable for our lives? Lord, we know that there's only one rock that allows that to be true, and that's you. So, Lord Jesus, help us today to rebuild, to tear down and to start over, to be anchored back to you again so that someday when we stand before you, that you welcome us into your presence for eternity. You don't ask us to depart. You don't call us evildoers, but you look at us and you welcome us in to be with you for eternity. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.